Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming out today. Looking forward to the spaces that we're having. I have guest Jonah Blake, who runs a gaming ecosystem and is also a somewhat active investor in private and public companies with gaming. Uh, very excited to have him. Also a personal friend. It, Jonah, love to hear about who you are, how you got into gaming, how you got into crypto, and just your basic background for anyone that might not know. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, been listening to your show for a little bit. Uh, I got into crypto in, uh, I'd say, early 2016. I'm just trying to think of the date. But yeah, early 16, 2016. Um, I kind of studied it more after I was into the idea of blockchain and then my local bank uh, deleted one of my accounts because uh, I, I talked about the idea of having blockchain involved in one of my startups and uh, the bank was very much afraid of that. So I, I knew that either there was something um, very new here uh, or, or something very powerful because if uh, a bank is scared of it, then, then it's worth at least knowing what the hell it is. Um, so yeah, and uh, I started out in media, worked at my family's media organization. I built out what are called RSS and RTMP feeds for news content. So instead of being a front-facing publisher, we were a supplier of news to multiple organizations like CNN and Fox. Um, one of the first feeds that I started at the company um, was a gaming and esports news feed. Those became one of our more successful or profitable uh, feeds because, uh, at that time, uh, gaming and esports was starting to become quite popular in the investment community. And uh, that sort of led me into meetings with a lot of investors. I, I didn't have VC experience uh, to any degree at that point in time. But I realized that being uh, someone who works in the news is a lot like being a, a early fund manager or associate because they practically have the same role, which is knowing what's happening in the market, why it's happening what deals are likely to be done and why, and what are some of the uh, basic uh, uh, statistics. And uh, so that basically uh, led me into working in, in VC and then uh, in family office. And then I kind of got my break about two, two and a half years ago when one of those relationships led me to helping write a bill into the state Senate of Ohio around uh, esports betting that bill did pass. And so I'm probably one of the youngest people in the country to pass a bill related to sports. I, I was 25 at the time. That was really interesting. And at the same time, I had just started a fund called Game Fund Partners. And uh, that, that fund still exists today. We do what are called SPVs, special purpose vehicles. We find really enticing deals. We do all the reporting and uh, value proposition to it. We come up with uh, deal terms with that company or we look to acquire shares. And then we, uh, you know, we find other uh, VCs or investors who traditionally like private equity or late stage deals to uh, to make those investments. Um, I've only shared one, but there's there's three deals currently. But the one that I publicly shared is Discord. But I think I've told you privately what the other ones are. Um and then about a year ago, I had this epiphany and I was like, no, none of these gaming media companies are coming here because they don't understand NFTs and they, they don't like NFTs. And I was like, well, I'll just build the IGN of, of Web3. And I didn't think it would make any money. Um, I was wrong. It, it has made me money. And uh, we, we've grown quite popular in the span of a year. We did raise some, some very early angel capital. 
we also brought in some some sponsor revenue and uh you know then we started an nft community around it which has done quite well for us and uh now i'm here that's awesome uh you know as we have a lot of private conversations that aren't public one of the things that i think is most interesting about your perspectives is you tend to remain pretty agnostic as to you know platform or game or nft and you're really very focused on looking forward at not what's happening today but what's going to be happening in months and years in the future of gaming one of the things that both you and i are pretty excited about is the i don't know whether you'd call it democratization or decentralization of game creation and how that happens on platforms like Epic Games with the new Fortnite developer, how that might happen with roadblocks and how AI comes into that. I'd love to hear your perspective there. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I think, well, first off, the the tools from the Fortnite editor, the new Fortnite editor, UEFN, are incredible. Those have only been out for about a week. And uh, I think they're going to give Roblox a serious run for their money if not eventually um, over, overpass them. The only thing that Roblox has an edge on is is their demographic. Um, they, they just have an even younger audience, especially when you have like role-play games. And that, that younger audience, um, having an audience is very sticky, you know? So the, Fortnite still has that issue of like how you get those other Roblox-style players into your game. But I think that's going to change over time just because the editor... You know, basically, the new Fortnite editor is is a Roblox uh, toolkit on steroids. And it's um, like as a developer, it's like, why would you not use it? Um, yeah, and then we'll, we'll we'll get to AI. But the thing that I think about with with metaverses is not just the tools, but it's how do you find one? And I think people don't think about this because every everything in gaming um, relates to distribution, right? There's a lot of great developers that can make amazing games. But uh, as Gabriel Layden says, like, how do you get someone to care about them? Uh, but it's not just how do you get someone to care about them. It's how do you even know what you're looking for in the first place? Because most people don't know what to search for. They just have it served to them, right? When you live in the fa- world of Facebook, you've never had to really search for anything. It's always been given to you. So people don't have the innate ability to even find uh, the, the world they're looking for. So um, when I think about that, that I, I tend to look at what has worked and what hasn't in similar industries. And so the first thing that comes to mind is book publishing, because there, you know, for the last 10, 20 years, it, there's been a relatively low a barrier to entry of publishing a book. If you want to self-publish, it doesn't cost a lot due to Amazon, but the key comes in who is going to be your distribution partner and just looking at like something like a Harry Potter, right? Like that, that was rejected by I think 12 different publishing houses before she was able to get it, you know, into a publisher that can distribute it and have readership. I think that's going to be very similar to the direction of gaming is you're going to see the distribution channels are what's going to hold the value. And as you said, how do you make somebody care? I think that, you know, the difference in the quality of games will probably not be that material, but the difference in the ability to get the games into your first thousand users or your first hundred thousand users is what's going to be the differentiator. Do you view that similarly or are you like a different mindset there? 
Um, I think it depends on the search engine you're placed within. Like, I think it'll. I think search is like really where it comes down to, and also how that data is organized for the end user. Um, you can go about it in kind of two ways. You can either be really analytical and down to like a, a psychological profile of, of of your players, probably attain players just through like really intricate mobile style game design. Um, but I think for the average person building a metaverse experience, it's going to come through, like you said, a book style publisher, but it won't be a, necessarily a company, or at least not, not in the structure that you know today. I think it's going to come through content creators because the thing about, at least I was, I was reading the payout attributions for Fortnite's metaverse and it's, it looks like it weighs or it calculates much more towards new logins and new accounts than it does relapsed accounts. And if that's the case, then you're not going to make as much money as someone who's already in Fortnite creating amazing experiences, unless you're like at the top 1%. You're going to be much better if you already know how to make a good experience and then bring in a great YouTuber or a great traditional brand or someone who can drive outside accounts into the platform so that way Epic Games can reward you not only monetarily but through search. Um, and so like I've been thinking about like, so Fortnite or Epic Games has already released like their their payout attribution calculation. It's not fully doxed yet, but they give you enough hints as to exactly what they're looking for. And I think most developers are going to totally miss this and they're going to lose search and it's going to be someone who does not ever build in Fortnite who gets gets the search. How do you think the search will be done? Because I, I'm assuming if you're going through Fortnite, you're going to be on the platform and you're going to say top, you know, most popular or what, what key metrics do you think will define who ranks highly in the searches on called Fortnite editor? So um, their, their platform was already disclosed that they looked through two, two areas, which is player popularity and player retention. Um, and, and they call their lands islands. So you have, you can build experiences or games on islands um, islands that attract new players and re-engage lapsed players can signal an experience that players love. So basically they look at uh, the number of players joining Fortnite and lapsed players returning to Fortnite, meaning if someone had a Fortnite account and they were making purchases, but they fell off because they got bored, what is like is your game bringing back those, those purchasers? I, I don't think they'll calculate that necessarily well, even though they say that, because a relapsed player is someone who's already spent and so getting them to purchase something else is probably going to be very difficult because they've already spent and then they were bored. It wasn't like they were bored, but they never spent. Um, so I imagine they're going to be much tougher to sell, um, which is why I think they're going to go for new accounts. And then there's retention. They care about that a lot, which means if someone returns to your game on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week, -week, um, which indicates gameplay, uh, they're going to attribute that. The problem with that is player retention is not what Metaverse should be calculated as because metaverse experiences can't create very good gameplay loops and so anyone who creates a metaverse that is getting paid out in, in like retention hours or retention logins are probably going to make very little money and so i think they need to add a couple of variables here which they haven't done yet so i actually wrote a i wrote a report last night and i sent it to their team i i have friends at epic and I said, if you guys could like look at this and like hear some suggestions. So I made some suggestions on how to actually make this a little better. So given the amount of money that's at stake, I think 
people really underestimate this. Like it, the value of spending by players in games is substantially higher than the value of spending by consumers of movies by Hollywood. I mean, there there's real money to be made here. How do you stop uh, people from gaming that system and basically botting your island to where like someone goes on with 400 accounts and just plays your island with AI or something like that? How, how do you get around something like that? So this is actually one of the things I sent them that I thought was the biggest issue is if you're going to change the variables around search, then you you need a way in which to well, not prevent cheating, but it, to a degree, somewhat centralized method in order to uh, scan through these islands. And so I mentioned two, um, two possibilities, which is badges, uh, time and label, and I also added lifespan payout. And so these variables, which they don't have yet, or at least that I'm aware of, but I suggested this uh, the other day, which is um, the badges are, are actually a, a inspired by YouTube. So with YouTube, um, you get more benefits or more value based on how long your channel exists. But not only that, how many followers or users or subscribers you get. And so, you know, every YouTube channel, when it passes, I think 10,000 gets a... a um, a plaque, then a hundred thousand, I think a million, then ten million, and then then it gets crazy. Um, what I suggested to Fortnite or Epic Games was that not only have that same scenario for builder programs, but when you have a builder program at each leg of the badge, you get an additional feature that your island can use. So one thing I thought about is if you're in a verified Epic program, you're a verified Epic builder, or you have an Epic badge, you can increase server capacity. Because that's the one thing other side has right now that Epic doesn't, or at least they haven't shown, is an ability to create experiences that are beyond 100 players. So instead of letting everyone do that, because Epic couldn't afford to do that, their servers would just go fucking crazy. Excuse my language. I don't know if you're a PG podcast. No, you can speak openly however you want. Whatever language you like, you can use. (laughs) Okay, cool. Um, Epic can't do that because it has millions and millions of players. And so their server costs would just be untenable. But what they could do is based on your commitment to the network and how you build and your consistency of building. And if you're a good actor, you can over time increase the server capacity, player count, uh, tool depth. Like there's a very variable amount of things you can do and gamify the desire to continue building new experiences after you build the first one. Um, so one thing was badges that the other thing was time and label. So if um, the reality is that metaverse is not the same as a game in terms of their core loop and one is a lot stickier than the other. So if you if you calculate, if you're saying you're building a metaverse that also has games, you can't have the same calculation for both experiences. And so before you build a, an island, you should have specific labels or metadata labels which indicate what kind of island you're building or what experience. Are you building a metaverse? Are you building a game? Are you building a gallery? Because you can't, if you compete with a game as a metaverse, you're not going to get a good payout. So what, what you got to do is if you're, if you're building a metaverse, then it's like, how much time do you capture? Okay. So if you, if you capture 20 minutes, then you, then you get uh, accepted into the, the traffic calculation. But if you are a game that only got 20 minutes, then you wouldn't or if it was whatever the variable was. But if you were labeled as a game and you got an hour of time, then you would get accepted into the audience traffic calculation, but get a higher payout. 
So there should be tiers as to the payout because metaverse experiences cannot last more than about 20 minutes. Uh, we've seen this with all the biggest metaverse experiences because standing around is, is boring as hell and there's nothing to do after you've already experienced um, that world. So I, time and labor is another 20 minutes there. I, I'll give you a little pushback on this. And I think it depends on the demographic of your player. I agree with it for Fortnite because a Fortnite game is sub 20 minutes. But I think that you either consciously or subconsciously condition your players for the time that they're going to be allocating. And the reason I say this, it, while this dates myself a little bit, there are certain raids that you could do in World of Warcraft that would exceed that 20-minute time barrier, and people would get very into them. Now, that may be more of a hardcore gamer, but I think that you can create layers of depth for gameplay for different levels of players, uh, just like some games out there, like I can hop in and play Rocket League for 20 minutes and be in and out. But there are other games like uh, maybe Elden Ring where I might have to sit down for an hour plus to really get into it. How, how do you differentiate those two or you just disagree with me and have a pushback on that? So so I certainly disagree because Rocket League and Elden Ring are both games. They're not metaverse experiences. And I played the other side part two world over the weekend, uh, last weekend. And, uh, like, you could have cut the time it took to experience that in, in, in half, if not by 75%, because the pacing was, was really bad. Um, and I can tell you, as someone who played in the game, after about five minutes of collecting golden orbs for these frogs, or whatever you want to call them, people just stopped playing altogether, and they let their, their character were just sitting idle waiting for the next procedure. And so people don't have attention spans for metaverse experiences that, in my opinion, for now, unless there's something else, exceed what about 20 minutes. World of and Warcraft so, where you have the two or three hour raids with. That's not a metaverse. That's a game. OK, so how do you differentiate a metaverse from a game? Their core loop. I mean, a metaverse doesn't have a core loop. It doesn't have a repeating loop. A metaverse is an experience. Like, I mean, unless you were like really into it, you could repeat it. But most people don't. It's like. If you play the other side part two event this weekend, that had no repeating loop at all. You did it you did it once and you were very happy and then you moved on to the next thing. If you play Rocket League, there's a repeating loop. There is there are two opposing teams, five minutes on the clock, get as much points as possible, and there is depth to the gameplay within the loop that allows you to become a master or someone who is experienced in the art of that game. Same thing for Call of Duty. World of Warcraft has the same thing. You have raids, you play those raids cooperatively, you get loot, you then wear that loot, you can go sell that loot. If you don't want to sell that loot, you can craft that loot, and then you wait for the next the next raid to happen. So th these have loops, but metaverse experiences are right now are open-ended loops. Or they're not loops, sorry, they're open-ended. Yeah. So, so there's no repeating experience. So, I mean, I think you and I are probably going to agree to disagree on this, but... I think that the future is there's not going to be a differentiation between this is a metaverse and that is a uh, game. I think that you're going to see a blending of it. Obviously, I respect where you're coming from. And I think that we're seeing it from a little bit of a different angle. To me, other side is not a metaverse. Other side is not a video game. Other side is like an alpha test of something that's three, five years away. So I don't really baseline that. Like, I can't count that as a metaverse. I, I see, like, um, Sandbox is an operational metaverse without a lot of players on it. But we haven't seen 
I, I think the closest thing we've seen to a metaverse is probably World of Warcraft. It, and you're saying it's a game, and it is a game. It, but I think, to me, there hasn't been a successful metaverse. It's a hypothesis it, where the only thing that's held a layer of metaverse-like you know, go through land, collect things, feels like World of Warcraft at scale. I mean, they're able to hit, you know, 10 million users. But, um, yeah, I mean, I respect that you, you might see that differently. But, I think that- well, but, but, but can you understand that? I don't think you're wrong from the user perspective, but I think you're wrong from the developer and game designer perspective because it, on the front end, it doesn't matter what you see. What, what matters is, is on the back end is how those payments are attributed. Because if Epic Games has a blanket attribution for a metaverse and a game, then they're going to lose money. And if they lose money, then you'll have no metaverse. And so when you're actually doing the back end work of attribution and payments and rev share and all these, these are very complicated things. Like they're going to have to build algorithms to do it with the audience so they understand the differences between what you're Okay, so, so, so when you're playing other side, and you're, or you're playing World of Warcraft, you can say it's a metaverse or game. It doesn't really matter as long as you're there for a period of time. But there are certain sections of a metaverse or a game that, that would have a payment attribution for the developers if, if they're getting paid by Epic. So let's say you're in... Let's, I'll give you an example, okay? How about this? Let's say you are playing World of Warcraft and you enter a raid, Okay, so let's say that the that the game recognizes the rate is the gameplay loop section of your world. And now it's calculating how long you spend in the gameplay loop section of the world. And, it, and there's a payout there to the developer. Okay, then you leave and you go to the local town square to trade, have a conversation, press an emote to dance, whatever. It could say now you're in the metaverse section of the world and your pay your payout scale has changed. And now instead of capturing them for at least 20 minutes to an hour, you need to capture someone's attention in this part of the land for 10 minutes. Because if if Epic Games just says they just entered World of Warcraft and they did it for 10 minutes, here's 20, here's 20 bucks per user. I don't know how what their user calculation is, right? I'm just making an example. Um, people are gonna game that. People are gonna game that and they're gonna they're gonna cheat it. And then Epic is gonna lose money on these rev share things. Um, also it's about optimization, right? Uh, it's important, for, like Epic games, I'm just, is a scenario or is not just interested in you bringing players to the platform, but are you interested in keeping them on the platform on a daily basis? And are you getting them to make transactions, whether that's through just your game or just the overall Epic game store? Are you making them spend any money? Because if no one spends any money, there's, there is no revenue shared to, to share with with the companies because the forty percent rev share that they just announced is based on revenue that Fortnite makes from microtransactions. So in order for this to work, you have to get game developers to get people to spend money or get their players to spend money. Sure. So right now I see there's basically three primary revenue drivers, and maybe you see them differently, but I see there's three ways that you can make money as a game developer. You can have a monthly subscription which is similar to like a World of Warcraft. You can have microtransactions, which appears to be the primary way of generating revenue on mobile. And then you could have a one-time only acquisition of a game similar to call it like an Elden Ring, where you buy it and then you play it or, or Hogwarts or something like that. What do you see being the role of NFTs into the future and how does that drive revenue to the game developers? 
I don't think NFTs drive revenue to game developers at all. I don't. I think pe- that's not the purpose of NFTs, and I think people have misconstrued what NFTs can actually do. I don't think NFTs play a role in any of those three things. I think, I think it's a marketing and data tool that's used to provide uh, initial audience. But I think if you, you this is not NFTs for games are not how a game makes money, and if that's what it's going to be then gaming NFTs will fail because it's not sustainable. And we've already seen this. When you dilute your gaming NFT collection to, to hell, no one wants to take it because it has no value. You know, it's like a GameStop coupon. If it is, if it's too small of a collection, there's high demand, but you don't get enough players. And so you're trying to find this middle group for marketing purposes for, for these characters. And I think it's we're going from the top-down approach where we're all trying to find the whales right now and just getting them into the game to want to experience it. But notice that most most games that are giving NFTs have not found their whales yet, and that's a problem um, because whales like spending, and most people in NFTs don't spend any money. So I agree with this fully because I think NFTs are a marketing play. That being said, if they're not a revenue driver, why not set the royalties to zero for many of these companies? Why not get away from the royalties, allow them to go into the hands of people without that transactional cost? Because there's still a cost to develop the thing. And so you want to recoup that cost as much as possible. I mean, there's like, it's not like making NFTs isn't free. It's still a cost for your company. And if you can recoup that cost and also convert them into core community members, I don't see a problem with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I I can see that. I mean, I think you know you can debate whether or not there should be royalties, but I think that that's logical. I mean, I think the vast majority of people are misunderstanding the use of NFTs, and I think that there's a duality to this universe of NFTs have almost exclusively been sold as a way to hold value today or a way to speculate on value i i would say yeah i mean like your your real third web is not an example of i would say skybrook is also not an example of it like i think we've been pretty explicit these are club memberships it's you know you're not going to make money your value proposition isn't going to be on the resale of this your value proposition is the experience the people you connect with but i think the vast majority of nfts have been put into this category of an investment, which, you know, it, to me is not the right way of looking at it, but I think you need to define ownership because the psychological profile of somebody who owns something is very, very different. And their willingness to invest time, money, resources to grow the value of that than somebody who has no ownership of it. How do you see the psychology playing out of you own an NFT in an ecosystem. Where do you think someone psychologically acts differently because they have ownership versus not? Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. Well, ownership, the, the psychology of ownership is associated, associated also with responsibility. And with responsibility, people can decide to abstain from actually falling through in responsibility or many people are money. Many people are, just human nature when they have a responsibility they they follow through on something and so when you own something or at least you have the perception that you own something you're going to at least at least in the sense of gaming nfts you're going to advocate for that game 
or you're going to expect something from that game for doing something else. And so, you know, there's two, there's two sides of that coin. You can have someone be your biggest cheerleader, or you could have someone be um, essentially a contractor and, and be, be a, effectively a marketing manager to syndicate content to, to people who may not have the NFTs. And so I think ownership is not just, um, I guess, a concept in this space, but it's also a marketing and acquisition tool because, you know, it's like the Girl Scouts, right? Girl Scout cookies. You know, why, you know, I'll tell you, why do Girl Scouts sell cookies relatively well? It's because their parents have to buy the supply first. And so they own the cookies. And now they have a, a strong motivation to resell those cookies at a higher price. I mean, it's, you know, we've done this before, just not in NFTs. Yeah, I, I fully agree with that. I also think that if you spend time studying the psychology of money throughout history, the strongest correlation to how good a currency is, is actually how good that country is at privatizing land ownership. Because when people own the land privately and it's effectively documented and they can sell it or make improvements, they tend to make many capital improvements to the physical domiciles, which creates an overall larger market cap for the country. But then they also have layers of liquidity built into that. I think this is something from both an economic and psychological perspective that very few people understand. I feel like you get it uh, pretty well. And what you're saying with Girl Scout cookies is not that much different than land ownership. And I think that by doing these things, you end up with having a stronger in-game currency. So moving on to the next concept, what are your thoughts on in-game currencies like Ronin, Fraxy, Infinity? So I think then assuming it's legal, because we both live in the United States and we don't know it's even legal at this point because <laughs> we, we keep changing things. Uh, there's, a, there's some interesting bills being proposed in the law now that uh, if passed, uh, don't use a VPN. But um, what I'll say is if this is allowed, I think the future will not be tokens natively to one game but publisher tokens and i think gala and and ronin kind of figured this out whether they're the winners or not doesn't matter but the reason why game tokens that are that that relate to real money in many cases will not work is for the simple fact that people never consider because they think it can't be them is that games die uh, games almost always die and the thing that people miss because they don't work in games is that they think a GTA 5 or that a CSGO or that a Call of Duty or World of Warcraft, like these are considered normal games. Like this is just like what it is. But, you know, you got 600 to 1,000 games a year that go to market. Maybe 30 of them actually get played. Of that, I would say 29 of them or 28 of them don't last more than a year. And then the last one or two that come out that year maybe last two years. And maybe every two or three years you find a game that can survive five, ten years. And so basically this includes even the other side is that the other side 
and all NFT games have a very likelihood of death within the first year. Uh, maybe the first, well, the other side has enough capital, let's say the first two years. And so what happens is like everyone calls it a rug because the game dies, but no, that's just the natural cycle of entertainment. But the thing that doesn't necessarily die is the, is the company that created it or, or the publisher in this case. So a Yuga token, maybe other side dies. This is why they have ApeCoin because ApeCoin can survive the other side, assuming, assuming people believe in Yuga if the other side died because it's such a strong narrative. I'm just making scenarios here. But, but the ApeCoin could survive beyond uh, the game. Um, Gala figured this out. I know Axie is pretty much understands this. They're, they're a multi-title game now. Um, so this is the future publisher publisher tokens. It will not be game tokens. Um, and if they are game tokens, they're like publisher tokens that get put into a sink and then converted into game tokens for a certain period of time and then converted back into publisher token like on like a convertible note style deal. Yeah, uh, this is something you and I strongly agree on. And I, I think that for a currency to survive, you need uh, you know an anti-fragile principle, meaning that the longer it exists, you know the Lindy effect. The longer it exists, the stronger it will be. And if your currency is tied to a parent company that is worth a billion, ten billion, a hundred billion, a trillion, uh, that's going to be a much more durable currency than something that's tied to a singular game asset. And there's also a reality that you don't always know what game is going to work uh, the first day out. I mean, like uh, Cyberpunk 2077 is a good example of a game that flopped aggressively and then, you know, later down the line came out with enough updates to be a viable game and then created a little bit of a media franchise to go with it. But that's, well, that one's actually, like, Cyberpunk is a very rare case yeah. because they had planned an anime well in advance and they, they, I don't think they knew how popular that anime show would become. And it was actually really interesting. The anime show was so popular on Netflix that that after the show ended, like the week after, Cyberpunk hit like top three on the charts again on Steam. And like totally like, I don't think they made all of their money back from the, from the headache that they caused. But I, I'm sure at this point, Cyberpunk is probably now profitable. Not to like a large extent, but they but they probably made most of their money back. It was successful enough from the anime that they already greenlit, I think, two cyberpunk games over the next 15 years. Yeah, and I think this kind of dovetails into the next subject of conversation, which is how do you anticipate AI is going to allow for gaming and media to blend together because to to make it a little bit more clear from my perspective right now you have a movie which is very different from a video game which is very different from a tv series which is clearly different from a comic book i tend to believe that with the integration of ai it, you'll start to see a very close blending of these things together to where movies and video games or TV shows and video games may end up being one and the same. What is your perspective on how AI is going to create a different single player experience that could be more rich and more deep and how that does cross media play? Uh, so I don't think they'll be one and the same. I think people are kind of like, 
pie in the sky with that, but I do think that AI is going to change entertainment forever. The pro, the there's a plus with every new technology comes like a significant drawback, or at least for the for the workers that are currently in it. And, and I think what you're going to see is that um, we're going to have too much content. There's going to be too too many things that can be played or watched, and they're all going to feel. I mean, I, I give you an example, right? Right now, games games are like a well-cooked meal right now you know like it's a it's a mom and pop shop and you know they're making you know chicken franchise right and it's it's all homegrown the ingredients are all natural or relatively natural and their suppliers have limited supply but um when you add ai to the mix which this will happen whether it's in a year or five years whatever it is 10 years um games are gonna be more like fast food and and that creates some opportunities and significant challenges. What do you mean by that? Just so the audience understands, games will be more like fast food because it can be manufactured at such a fast rate. You're not getting a game with extreme depth. You're getting an experience that is well polished, has calories, but ultimately in the long run may not be that enriching of an experience if you play enough games because if you if like for like like Josh you're probably pretty well off i would assume that you eat very well or relatively well and that maybe you like mcdonald's in a in a blue moon right but if you were to have mcdonald's every day you'd be very sick of it would you not i have not eaten at mcdonald's in probably 10 years okay but you get the while. idea All right, so <laughs> like so like let's so basically, if you like, I'll give, I'll give you another example. If you're on a diet and you have junk food like once a week, then that junk food is really, really nice. It hits the spot. But if you have junk food every day, you're going to feel like shit. And so uh, the same thing's going to happen for games or any entertainment content that is using AI to, to an extreme extent. And so what you have is you're going to have a ton of fast food restaurants and people are going to eat the fast food because they do. And some of them will enjoy it. But you, but you still need those those homegrown um, cuisine, you know, style restaurants. They're still going to exist, um, and I think those actually become more valuable, not less. And so I, I worry that um, a lot of people will jump into AI thinking they're automatically going to make money in games now that AI makes things easily accessible. But when when anything becomes easily accessible, there is a new tier uh, of accomplishment that becomes a lot harder. And I think. I think the secret is going to be uh, curators, whether that's someone like me or I see Bryce in the audience or any sort of much, much bigger content creator in the Web2 world. You're going to have people who um, are like wine tasters, right? Like instead of me showing you any game, my value will be that I can show you games that are better than McDonald's because there's going to be such an overproduction of entertainment that people are not going to know what to look at and they're going to be like overwhelmed and that that overwhelming sense of abundant content is going to make people feel uncomfortable so i actually i i think that it's um, ai is going to be amazing for many games in many cases but because anyone can do it you're just going to have really shitty experiences that that overcrowd the rare ones and you're just going to content creators are going to become even more valuable or content-based groups that that focus on curation I think it's going to be barbell. I think you'll have fast food style stuff like you're talking about. But I also think that 
the very well-crafted ecosystems will have a layer of depth that is just not possible today. I think there's a universe in which the greatest game in the world may come out and your best friend is your AI counterpart in the game. And that that AI will have the ability to be augmented based on who you are and your interactions with that AI will allow it to be a level of psychological depth and interpersonal communications that has never been possible with a machine or an AI. And I think that there will be what you're talking about. I fully agree with that. But I think there's going to be this other layer of depth that is so much more rich and deep that I think that will create people having fake relationships or real relationships with non-sentient beings. And I think that the single player modes in those games may be as rich or more rich than the multiplayer modes that we're currently experiencing. Do you disagree with that or do you agree with that? I somewhat disagree. Um, for one, is that AI is not what generates in, in, in very deep game experiences. It's server capacity. And AI doesn't solve for server capacity. Maybe at some point it does. But the reason why you can't have deep experiences is because we're limited by the tech we currently have. And that's not an AI problem. That is a server capacity problem. And we only have, only have so, many, so much server capacity in the world because it takes energy to, to run them. And then the other side of that is, Josh, let me ask you, if every game is innately deep, when I say deep, I mean trying to be deep, what happens? You'll have cream rise to the top, and there will be a few top players that do it. It, real. Mean, it means most of the games that have extreme depth no longer have depth, and the most deep game is going to be one that that is just like a dude slaps another dude in the face, and that and that's like the game because people are always looking for the antithesis of what society is trying to push onto them, and this is the extreme case in gaming. And if every game has extreme depth, then no game has any depth. And yes, there will be some that rise to the top, like your three out of the year. Um, but if those three out of the year start pumping out the same in-depth game twice a year now because the acceleration of game development would be astronomical, uh, they're no longer in-depth. So you'll have to, I mean, if that's the case, then you'll have to have manufactured wait time in order to make a game feel like it has depth. Um I just think that I think that if people have these imaginations of what AI is going to do for gaming, but there's a lot of things they don't consider when it comes to actually making the game and what players are looking for. Cool. Well, I think uh, you know I'll, I'll put a friendly one dollar bet that in five years we have a new level of depth to gaming, and our friends will be online, and one of us will be right and one will be wrong. I I think you'll see that in one game, but it won't be in it won't it like yeah. it's no, no, there's no, it not going to be, be a democratic game. opportunity. For no, people. no, 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 it's no. not going to change. No, I that I fully agree with. This will happen in one, two, three out of a hundred thousand games will connect at a deep level that isn't currently available. And I think we're saying similar stuff. But I do want to open it up to uh, the questions. We've got two people up on stage. If you're comfortable, uh, I'd love for you to field some questions from Literati and uh, Lucky. Literati, do you have a question? Hey, good morning, Josh. Uh, good morning, Jana. Uh, thanks for your time here. It's great to hear from your gaming experience. Um, I, have, uh, I have a question, actually a, a two-part question. Uh, you know, 
there are so many gaming uh, NFT projects right now, uh, and every day you see a new one uh, showing up. So um, from your experience, first part of the question is, how do you differentiate a game that has a, a real potential uh, to be a winner and one that's doomed to fail? Yeah, for uh, that you, you, you see that game and you say, this is going to fail. When you look at it, you know, how do you feel? How do you rate that? How what's what's the advice? Second part is, uh, how, what's the roadmap for those game uh, game NFT projects that have potential to break the surface? Should they build like a functional, fully functional game uh, that's like interesting enough to uh, you know grow up of, uh, organically and go viral, or should they just build a concept? and uh, search for funding uh, or should they partner with the gamers influencers influencers uh, if you was a, 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 a nft project a gaming nft project and would look for your assistance or your advice what would be the roadmap that uh, you uh, uh, suggest for these teams yeah no, it's, a, it's a great question and thank you thank you for asking um what do i look for well any game that starts with meta is usually a zero um, because it shows that they have a lack of imagination. Um, any game that has developers who've never made another game, or the term in the gaming industry is, have you brought the game to gold? When you, when I, when um, someone says they brought a game to gold, it means they've shipped a game, and it even if it sold or not, it's gone to a distributor or a, a sales platform to be purchased. So uh, you can funnel out 99% of game NFTs by just asking, have you shipped a game in Web2? Because if they say, no, I'm not going to buy the NFT. I'm just going to be honest um, in any capacity. And I probably won't share it around unless there's something really special about it that's very different. The next thing I looked at look at is what they're promising. Like, what is the depth to that promise? If someone tells me they're going to build an MMO, there's a very unlikely chance that I'm going to buy that NFT because the first thing I'm going to ask is how much money have you raised? Have you made an MMO before? And what is this MMO offering that is uniquely different than something like Riot Games or Blizzard or EVE Online are going to offer? And if they can't answer any of those questions in a, in a pretty simple way, or they're giving me long stated answers, that's probably a rug. So I'm not going to buy that. Um, if the game is um, more focused on promoting the content creator than the nature of the IP itself, I'm probably not going to buy it because that is great for early purchasing and trading, but within three months, they're going to fall on their face because they need to show content. Um, if someone uses the NFT as a pre-order and not as a marketing tool for a game, I'm probably not going to purchase because that tells me that they are wrangling up enough funds to then go raise VC funds, probably from someone like me, to then go make a game, which means the time horizon of the game development is going to kill the NFT, and the NFT will eventually go to zero because they didn't meet certain time verticals. And then um, your second question, there's like a ton of others, but these are like basic things that I, that I look at that filter out most, most projects. And then the next thing, um, you said, what should a game developer do right now um, to attract an audience? Um, I think making an NFT is interesting, but I don't think that's the answer because, I mean, I can tell you right now, we're doing a giveaway tomorrow 
um, for a game that has no NFTs, but they are blockchain embedded and the game looks substantial and I didn't need NFTs. All I said to that game was, hey, send us 100 early access codes. We'll give that to our community and whatever you have NFTs, then we can work on that. But if you just send me the codes and make them limited in scope for this initial launch of tests, that is as rewarding as an NFT for most people who actually want to play games and don't want to trade. Um, so it's not the NFT that you should start with. So I think I think you need a vertical slice. And um, I'm biased because I, I like Epic Games a lot. But I think um, it's never been easier to build a vertical slice of a game without raising funds now. And the beauty of using the Unreal Engine Fortnite editor or a Roblox editor is that you, with mi very minimal funding, you could probably find grants. You could build out a vertical slice that you could test if it gets any sort of traction on their platform. So for example, if you wanna build a, a bowling game, I'm just making a scenario, okay? You don't need the 2 million, 3 million, $5 million to make that game at first. What you'd need to do is go learn how to use Unreal Engine Fortnite Editor. And here's, here's a red flag. If the developer doesn't know how to use Unreal Engine and Fortnite Editor, then they probably don't know how to make a game because it's an extremely simple engine in terms of like how low code it is compared to actually using the real developer engines like Unity and Unreal Engine 5. So if they can't, if they can't use it, that's, that's quite alarming. Um, if they make a simple bowling game in Fortnite and it gets X amount of DAU or X amount of traffic, then when you're going to raise or you're going to go do, a, do an NFT, you could say, okay, so we built this vertical slice in Fortnite and we found that we had 5,000 you know, weekly users. So we believe that we can raise at X amount because if we had X amount of dollars, we could do this and this and this of the game. And then you could say to the VC, uh, I want to build build this stronger on Fortnite or I'd like to take this vertical slice and, and separate from Fortnite and build a, a solo game. I, I, think that, I think that pitch decks are kind of over. I mean, if you have brought a game to gold, then then you can do it. But I think if you're an indie developer and you want to get funding, it's time to go build a vertical slice in Roblox or Fortnite before you start talking to VCs. Great. Now, this is a really solid answer. Jenna, I, I know I've got you for an hour. Uh, do you have enough time for another question? or do Yeah, you... yeah, I have enough time for one. I, I have a hard stop at uh, 11 for a meeting, but yeah, I'm good for another. Okay. Uh, Lucky, love to hear a question from you, and then we'll wrap things up. And by the way, thank you very much for coming out today, Jenna. I always appreciate uh, your opinions. We don't always agree, but I think that uh, over time, uh, you know, one of us will be right on some things and the other on other things. Lucky, your question. Hey, GM Josh. Hey, GM Jonah. Um, Jonah, with, with all the new, like, uh, well, maybe not even new, but just accelerated technology growth and I guess people getting adapted to insane graphics and gameplay and that bar just keeps going higher and higher. In the future, like, what are some maybe innovative gameplay mechanics that you're looking forward to or that you envision and ones that are maybe, like, a little bit more uh, effective to be implemented? Like, you know, not pie-in-the-sky stuff, but stuff that would kind of blow our minds today. So I don't I don't believe that graphics make or break the game, actually. And, 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 and the, the numbers support what I'm saying. A lot of the top games that actually make money have quite shit graphics. Um, quite frankly. 
Um, so I wouldn't rely on graphics to determine a game. I would, I would, I would rely on graphics or art style to, to determine a metaverse actually. Um, that one, I think it's much stronger for that. Um, but for gameplay design now, nah. uh, I mean, there, there was a game on game pass that went crazy and it does, it, it has an art style that's not realistic graphics oriented. It's a, a Japanese uh, rhythm game. I'm forgetting the, the name, but it's very, very, very popular. Um, and what was, what was the second question? Like, um, what do you see as next level tech integration within gaming? Like, I know it's not all about the graphics, but you put it like rather eloquently. Um, but like with the new potentially rumored Apple headset, that's going to be coming out or maybe announced in the next year. Um, like where does the bar go from here for like impressing, like, just gamers or does it is it completely irrelevant to like a true gamer like a connoisseur gamer i think um i give me one second sorry um i think what other side is doing is actually this is where i actually think other side should get credit or i'm sorry their tech developer improbable because the tech improbable can do this for other brands but um the game depth will continually get better and better with with ai as josh said uh, and it'll be like a few games that can do this in terms of like what it's trying to say but um the next big hurdle as as i've been saying is is accessibility um and this is where other side actually has done quite a good job i mean it's pretty unheard of i mean it, it, it exists but not many people can do this where you can basically edge compute higher higher rendering based games onto almost any device i mean other side is not technically just cloud it's it's running off your graphics card but using a fractional amount of it so you they're using a tech called nvidia geforce now that's not other side's tech that's a very 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 valuable company called nvidia that's a public company that i i think is going to be around for a long time um and basically what it is is they have all this server infrastructure on improbable side that's i guess optimizing the amount of players that can exist in in a, a varied instance but if you want to have a game partially running on improbable servers and then sucking some power out of the gpu that's on your on your um computer then you can have these these other side experiences and and that is very impressive to me so I think the future, if you're going to become a big game, is thinking about accessibility and and um, distribution. It's not thinking about depth to the game because some of the most popular games on the face of the earth have are pretty simple in terms of gameplay, but they're highly accessible and they're highly distributed. Awesome. Uh, really appreciate that. I think uh, this has been a fantastic space. I think that it's always good to hear your perspective I like about 95% of what you say and 5% we disagree with. And to be honest, uh, that 5% may not even matter. It may be minutia rather than uh, a signal. But this feels like a really solid space for me. Jen, I want to give you a space to wrap up. Uh, any closing remarks you want to have. And then I also just want to say thank you. I really appreciate you coming out, taking an hour out of your day to spend time uh, for everyone here. No, I thank you for having me. I, you know, you have more in-depth conversations and you give people a platform for that. I, I guess I would say, <clears throat> you know, um, 
the future of NFTs is not going to be this PFP day trading stuff. Uh, like that is going to zero and we're getting close to a new cycle of these NFTs and, and I'm biased, but I'm, I'm pretty convinced that gaming is the super, the super app for these NFTs. And if you're going to survive in gaming NFTs, whether that means making money or at least being in, in that ecosystem, then you need to stop thinking like a PFP trader because the chemistry doesn't match. Well, I fully agree with that. I think that, you know, the future of gaming is really in these like $50 NFTs is going to be the sweet spot, maybe the microtransactions. And there's probably some universe where the NFTs in games grow value, but I think the, the vast majority of them will not be speculative assets that are there for the purpose of financial moves. It will be more for gaming ecosystems and it actually be more for, you know, digital identity in the same way that you might value a Timex given to you by your grandfather, there will be emotional connection to your gaming experience. That being said, uh, we're right on the hour. So thank you so much for coming out. Thank you to everyone who listened uh, and looking forward to talking more in the future, Joe. Appreciate it. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Have a great day.